Welcome to episode 51 of the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and usually my co-host Oliver Jones. This episode is with Melanie Winrich, physicist, founder of Fusion Energy Insights and head of communications for Tokamak Energy, one of the UK's most exciting fusion companies. In this episode, Melanie takes us on an exciting journey through the world of fusion, full of optimism, insights and interesting anecdotes. This mysterious and limitless source of energy isn't as far away as you may think. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and we hope you do too. Sorry for the delay in publishing, there have been a lot of changes this end. Ollie will hopefully be back with some exciting news soon and I've transitioned to my new role at venture capital firm AIV Capital, which has involved diving in at the deep end. More on this to come. On to the episode and it's my pleasure to introduce Melanie Winrich. Hi, I am with Melanie Windridge, founder of Fusion Energy Insights, UK director at Fusion Industry Association and scientific advisor uh, for Tokamak Energy. Melanie, thank you for joining. A pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So, um, I, I really enjoyed uh, coming across you in a clubhouse we did recently, uh, talking about all things sort of business for good. And I don't think the ambitions become much, uh, much greater than unlimited sustainable energy, um, which is hopefully the ambitions for fusion, but it's definitely not something that everybody can get into, even if they wanted to. So I'd love to know how you embarked upon a career in fusion uh, and how that all began. Oh, okay. So I suppose it, it all goes back to after university. So I, I did a physics degree at university. I was always interested in physics um, at school. I just found it fascinating. So I went on to, to university to study physics, even though I didn't really know what I wanted to do in the future as a career. And uh, and I still didn't when I finished my um, when I finished my undergraduate. But my parents always encouraged me to travel. And so I went off and um, I was like backpacking, uh, traveling around the world and um, working in a few different places as well. And it was during that time that I I learned about fusion and I became interested in fusion. And I think part of it was that I'd always been interested in the environment and I was aware of climate change. And I was also interested like when I learned in physics um, lessons that we were going to run out of fossil fuels, like they, they weren't a renewable resource. And like one day we were not going to have them anymore. And I, I'd always been interested in like, well, what we would do next for energy. And uh, and then when I was traveling around, I was doing things like I went hiking in the Himalayas and you saw glaciers that were retreating. And, and I did a lot of diving as well. And we'd see corals bleaching on the reefs. And like we knew that this was due to climate change. And so for me, it was sort of hitting home, like all of those messages. And some point during that time, I read about fusion energy and it's this clean, green, safe and abundant source of energy. And I just thought if we could do this, it would be incredible. Like it would solve all those energy problems. And, um, and so I became interested in, in fusion and, uh, and I wanted to be, be part of that. I just saw it as, to me, it just seemed like the, the best solution. And so I went back to, uh, to the UK and, um, and actually I, I, I went to Switzerland and did a, some work experience, uh, as well in a, a EPFL, it's called. It's the um, and at this, it was the Ecole Polytechnique Federale de Lausanne, and it was their um, Swiss plasma research group that I was working for, and um, and that was before I did my PhD. I had some I had some time to to kill between getting back from my travels and and starting a PhD, and it was just the most I just loved it there. It was the most incredible place on Lake Geneva and skiing at the weekends in the winter and things. Um, but anyway, I came back to, to London. I did my PhD at Imperial College London, working at the Cullum Centre for Fusion Energy, which is just south of Oxford. And uh, so that was my that was my introduction to, to fusion. That was how it all started out. And so that was like more than 15 years ago now. And I'm still convinced that, that fusion is a key uh, part of the, the future energy future. I think it has to be if we want to decarbonize and, you know, be sustainable in the long, long term. Well, it seems that we take a series of steps backwards. Um, and I can imagine when you're on that, that journey traveling around, I mean, you unavoidably end up tracing it all the way back to the sun, which is the origins of what we know to be fusion in its sort of purest form. And there's no questions that 
it all starts from there. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. And there's another source of energy that I'm not accounting for. But then, you know, we, we benefit from that. And even when you're having discussions around solar, um, you know that there is a conversion issue at some point that you, you're not getting the, um, the pure energy creation passed straight back into you. And, and I would say what's so interesting about when you began it is, is I was at Imperial in 2009 and we, we were definitely sort of starting to dip into the renewables discussion with, with more vigor, uh, looking at biodiesels and stuff like this. But what was the state of fusion research back then in terms of what people were looking at, what they thought was possible and how much technology being brought online in a sort of demonstrable fashion? So fusion's been researched for decades. They started researching it um, after the mm. Second World War, so the end of the 2040s into the 2050s. And, um, and back then it was just like little tabletop devices and they were learning like the, the whole field of plasma physics kind of came about through uh, through fusion research because they didn't even know like the basics so a plasma is just an electrically charged gas it's the fourth state of matter so if you heat a gas to high temperatures then the uh, the electrons actually break apart from the atoms and it becomes this electrically charged gas called plasma and so in the sun where fusion is taking place the the, the, the gas is not actually a gas anymore, it's it's a plasma. And so when we're doing fusion on Earth, it's the same thing, we're working with plasmas. And so there was a lot of work involved in just getting to grips with this like new state of matter this, that they had to deal with. And um, anyway, and so it progressed throughout the, the 60s. And in the 60s, there was this, um, this Russian design of fusion machine called the Tokamak. Uh, suddenly was was announced it was like so they surprised everybody because they were getting much higher temperatures than anybody else and this is what's really key like if you want to do fusion then you need like temperatures like you would get in a star so hundreds of millions of degrees uh, which is obviously quite challenging and so so temperatures are key a key parameter that they want to measure and and the russians are that got much higher temperatures than than anybody else and it was this design called a tokamak which is just a it's like a magnetic cage, if you like. It's got it's a ring donut shaped vessel with magnetic fields or magnetic coils around the outside that make um, magnetic fields that trap the plasma away from the walls. So you have to isolate this really hot uh, plasma away from the walls of the machine because otherwise the walls will get hot and the plasma will get cold and you'll never be able to achieve fusion. So the fusion research is all about finding clever ways to to trap your really hot fusion fuel. And so in the 60s, as I said, the, the tokamak concept came out, which is now the, the best researched and most understood of all the different concepts. And um, so after that, lots of people started building tokamaks all around the world. And fusion research was progressing rapidly in, in those days uh, to a peak of about in the 90s, late 90s, um, the jet tokamak in Oxford, Oxfordshire, south of Oxford at Cullum, mm. um, achieved fusion and another one in America achieved fusion as well, but Jet has the world record of fusion power produced, which was about 16 megawatts back in 1997. The thing is that they've not yet got more energy out of the reaction than was put in. So uh, Jet, they put in about 24 megawatts to get the 16 megawatts out. So they have a, we call it a Q value. So the ratio of the input energy to the output energy, they have a Q value of just under 0.7. And if you want to get to break even, mm. that's one, a queue of one, the same amount of energy out as you put in. So obviously for a power station, we want to get a queue of more than one. We want to get more energy out. So so that's been the progression over time. And um, so that was the end of the 90s, that world record. And since then, the the world's essentially been waiting for the next step, you know, the, the next machine that's going to be able to get past energy break even. And that next step is a machine called ITER which has been being built at the moment in the south of France. And and these are big machines. So Jet is about 12 meters high. So the very inner donut shaped vessel, a man can easily stand up inside that. And there's even, even a bit of space. So it's, it's quite a big machine. Um, but ITER is going to be about two or three times as big. So it's going to be huge. It's like 30 meters high and it's an incredible feat of engineering in fact i encourage you to go and have a look on the uh the eater website i-t-e-r and um and see some of the construction because they're building the tokamak at the moment so they've got this the huge like magnets 
being brought in and like dropped into the central uh, like tokamak hall and they're constructing the whole thing it's pretty cool um but it's so big and it's so expensive and it's a giant worldwide collaboration as well which is amazing to the whole world coming together to achieve fusion but it's just been very slow and very delayed because it's political and bureaucratic and so what's interesting to me and what's exciting in the last 10 years let's say is that we're starting to see and we have seen a lot more private companies come into the space and this is really interesting because the private companies have a real interest in doing things faster and of course they want to make, make money yeah. out of it and commercialize it and so it's a it's a different dynamic from just one of pure science uh, to one of yeah like let's get this done and let's make it economical and so i think it's really refreshing to see that and and so it's getting a lot more exciting like every year we're getting a few more private fusion companies coming on and there a lot of them are researching different concepts so there there are now there's more variety there's there's more knowledge coming into the space from these different concepts the tokamak is still ahead in terms of the research that's gone into it and what we know and there are a few startups researching tokamak concepts uh, but there are a lot of other ideas as well and i think that's really interesting so that's kind of where we are now we're at this point where there's been a lot of fusion research we've we've learned a lot we understand a lot there's still more to do uh, i'm sure we can talk about that too but um you know so we're not quite there scientifically yet but we've made a huge amount of progress over decades and now we're at that that time when commercial like private companies are starting to run with this now and the governments are starting to get interested and they're starting to look at regulatory frameworks and there's now a huge amount of public like groundswell for new technologies and sustainability and so i think i think now is just a hugely exciting time for fusion yeah so Obviously, there is a lot that one could go into, um, and, and in sort of preparing for this interview, obviously, I was trying to pick a, a battle. But I guess to take it back to the simple, the simple way in which fusion produces energy within this plasma, the goal of it is well, I will let you explain it, but it's, it's loosely speaking, am I right, to overcome the coulombic forces that push uh, nuclei apart from each other to then have the nuclear forces attract them and then energy is given off by overcoming that um repulsion or some something like that is that yeah, right so if you go right into the you know the center of what's going on here and like right down to the the atoms themselves um so fusion is the, the coming together of atomic nuclei so the very centers of atoms so you strip away the electrons from the atoms you don't really need to worry about those so much and what's happening is the they're called ions the central nuclei of the atoms the ions are coming together and fusing and so yeah they have this repulsive force um this coulomb repulsion uh between them because they they're both positively charged so all of the all atomic nuclei are positively charged so they don't want to come together they repel it's like trying to get two north poles of a magnet to come together you have to sort of you have to really force them and so that's why we need high temperatures because the hotter something is, the faster the particles are moving. So if you get those those particles moving really, really fast, then at some point, some of them are going to slam into each other hard enough that they get close enough to fuse. And, and by that, I mean that so they particles, the nuclei have uh, this repulsive force, which is electrostatic. Um, so it's the electrostatic repulsion that's pushing them apart. But there's another force called the strong force, which is a nuclear force. So it holds the nucleus together. And the strong force is really, really short acting. Uh, but it's much more powerful than the electrostatic force. And so if you get the particles close enough together, this strong force will kick in and it will pull the nucleus like tap down into itself and and it will be a you know a fully bound nucleus and and that's what you want and it it will kick out bits it doesn't want so in the fusion reaction that we would do on earth you use ty two types of heavy hydrogen so deuterium and tritium which is just hydrogen with extra neutrons and so these particles come together deuterium and tritium come together the strong force like locks them together and they make helium which has two protons and two neutrons and then they spit out an extra neutron just to make it stable and so that's the the fusion reaction that we do on earth deuterium plus tritium gives helium and a neutron and the helium will like, stay in the the plasma initially because it's 
also charged and it will heat the plasma a bit, you know, give up its energy to the plasma. But the neutron is a neutral particle, so it's not trapped by the magnetic field. So it will it will fly straight out of the machine. And also it's really small, so it carries away most of the energy of the reaction. And it's the energy of that neutron that we will use to, to harness, to make, we'll make heat and make steam and make electricity from that. So that's, that's like the basic inner workings of, of the fusion reaction. Because then it, it isn't there in the tokamak, is it a lithium jacket that goes around it to try and soak up? Yes some of the new yeah exactly so you'll yes. the lith so that's the way you would get the energy out essentially you'd have a layer of lithium around the outside of your machine and uh, the lithium would do two things uh, the first thing is is that it actually re reacts with the neutron to make um tritium and tritium is one of the fuels and, and we need that part of the process because tritium is slightly radioactive it's got a half-life of about 12 and a half years. And so that means that it doesn't last very long. It doesn't exist naturally. And so it needs to be made in the machine to keep the fuel source. So the lithium would re react with the neutron, make tritium, that goes back into the machine, but also it would heat up this, this blanket layer, we call it. And then you'd have heat exchanges in that blanket layer, which would then absorb the heat and use that to make steam and drive turbines. So, so, and in terms of the the, the net energy um, calculation at the moment, where we're having to surrender more energy, what what's causing that? As in, where is the energy drain versus this energy that we could harness coming out? Well, you have to. It goes into heating the plasma to the high temperatures, but also to the magnets because they're electromagnets. So you put um, electricity in. Um, you, you know, if you drive it around a coil of wire, then that coil of wire makes a magnetic field, and uh, so we have these um these magnetic fields are what trap the plasma and keep it away from the walls so so there's a lot of energy going into the magnets and into heating the plasma and into uh, controlling the plasma so you use magnetic fields again to make sure that it stays nicely balanced in the center of the, your machine um you don't want to hit the wall and cool down so there's all of these different systems that are that are kind of initiating the plasma heating the plasma keeping it in place so that's that's what's using the energy. Okay, and so as things have started to move forward now, what what is it that's given people cause for optimism? Um, I think, well, without feeding you the answer, but it seems Tokamak are doing a lot of great work with regards to their their magnetic strength that they can achieve. But um, mm -hmm. in terms of what's pushing pushing the technology forward, what, what is it that's got people kind of going back into this now, thinking that this is something we can start to, to meaningfully achieve? So I, I think that they're not going back into it. I think it's always been there. Um, you know, root research has been going on all, all this time. Um, but I think that there are certain reasons why it's why it's now getting more exciting. And um, and I should mention, yeah, I work for a company called Tokamak Energy, but it's it's a bit confusing the names, but it's, it's distinct from there's a the main concept is called the, the Tokamak and then Tokamak Energy is the company that I work for and they um, and they are, are re they are using the Tokamak concept, uh, but also actually a, a spherical Tokamak concept. So it's a slightly more squashed up Tokamak and um, and they're using a particular uh, material for magnets called high temperature superconductors, uh, which I'll talk a bit more about because they're really interesting. But so the, the, key, th the key reasons for optimism, I think, is that several things are coming together now. And I think those things are, like, are driving us towards fusion commercialization. And these things, I mentioned a couple of them earlier. I think that there's, we've now got uh, a, a good scientific base. So the, the science is, is fairly mature. As I said, there's still more that needs to be researched and more that needs to be understood, but we've got a good scientific basis now, particularly for the Tokamak concepts. Um, we've also got, enabling technologies. So a lot has changed. Even since ITER was designed about 30 years ago, uh, technologies have changed hugely. I mean, just think of your own technologies, like the phones that we use now, or like when ITER was designed, I was um, probably at school and I was listening to music on a Walkman. You know, I probably had a CD Walkman or something mm. like that, or, or cassettes, well, cassettes were in the 80s. But, you know, ITER was being designed back then in the 80s and the 90s. And so the technologies have changed hugely since then. And um, so some of the things that have changed, we've got uh, computing power, like high performance computing and things like AI um, 
and machine learning. Like, so these are really helpful because we can do things like we can we can simulate what's happening in these big fusion machines so we can better understand what's happening like inside the plasma or even you know in the wider machine itself um, you know, things that take up huge amounts of computing power uh, but it saves us from either like well it helps us with the designs so we don't have to build machines and, and get them wrong like, we can test things out before we even build them um, we can use things like machine learning to like help optimize the way that we operate these machines. Um, there's a huge amount that we can do with, with the increased computing power. So that's one. There's also um, technologies, like I mentioned, high temperature superconductors for magnets. Like This is really key. And some people think it's a game changer for fusion because what these materials allow us to do is make higher magnetic fields. And that means that we can make better traps for our plasmas ultimately, um, you know, make, make more efficient machines. And um, and so these, these are superconductors, which means that they they don't have any resistance. So that you can you can keep on running these magnets like forever, essentially, and um, and they don't heat up, which is something that's a problem with like let's say copper magnets. They will heat up, and then you have to stop running the machine. So superconductors are really important. Is that with the quenching problem, or is that separate for the magnet quenches? Uh, superconductors have quenches, and so that's something that has to be. Um, investigate. Yeah, so that a quench is just when so superconductors okay. operate at really low temperatures. So for conventional tokamaks, this is around sorry, conventional superconductors, this is around like four Kelvin, which is about like minus two hundred and sixty nine degrees or something. Um, and so this is yeah, really low temperatures. And and so a quench happens if the magnet gets a little bit too hot and it stops being superconducting. And so then it has resistance and then it will make heat and it's just this like chain process that, that shuts down the magnet. Um, quenches are less of a problem for high temperature superconductors because you've got more of a buffer zone with a high temperature superconductor. These, these can operate at more like 80 Kelvin. So a lot higher temperatures, more like minus 200 degrees C. Um, although for some machines, like for tokamak energy, they'll probably operate them at around 30 Kelvin. But anyway, it's still like a five-fold energy saving in terms of the cryogenics that you need to cool the magnets. So you're saving a lot of energy just in your magnets. And um, and also, yeah, the quenches are, you've got more of a more of a buffer because they're not going to get, they don't need to be kept so cold. Um, and they seem more robust, the high temperature superconductors to these quenches. So it is something that still needs to be um, detected and prevented but it seems to be an easier challenge than for conventional superconductors. So, so this, is, yeah, this is a key enabling technology because it will enable us to make higher magnetic fields with um, an energy saving in terms of the cooling and in probably um, smaller spaces as well. So you'd be able to make smaller machines, which is really key. So, there are, so these are just some of the enabling technologies. Uh, so this is important, but the other things that are driving us towards uh, commercialization are as I mentioned before, like public demand, that like being being green is is like not like a hippie thing like it was in the 1980s or 90s. You know, it's like much hmm. more embedded now in our society and the way that we think. And there are much more demands for sustainability and new energy options. So there's a, a much more public appetite for cleaner solutions. And then on top of that, we're also seeing private investment into fusion. And and this is important as well because it's enabling these startup companies to to come up and develop fusion technologies and and they're moving faster and they're more ambitious in terms of their timescales and as I said they're also thinking about the commercial and the economic side of it and not just the science side it's, it's a mixture a balance between the two and so just in the last ten years we've seen. Um, a lot of private companies coming into the space. There's now the Fusion Industry Association. I'm the UK director of the Fusion Industry Association as well, which is the like, representing this growing fusion industry. And we've now got about 25 member companies. These are all private fusion companies. And there are a few more besides that as well around the world. Um, and that's dramatically increased in the last 10 years. And I think in total, private fusion has had about $2 billion of, of funding over the last 10 years or so and um, and that's only increasing and so this is this is really exciting i think because all of these things are really coming together now to 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 drive us to to commercialization faster it's funny when you reference a figure because i think the um the annual so quotable startup figure for uk uh, venture industries is, is getting up to about 10 billion 
And then you think in terms of where we put our resources and our money, you'd think that that throwing a lot of it towards fusion would be a, a kind of, well, it's not, not necessarily a no-brainer, but certainly worthy of, of attracting a lot of attention and excitement. But like with anything, I think you are right, there is a communication piece where it has to trickle down somewhat into the mainstream. Uh, and that's worked tremendously well for space recently. Yeah. And it seems that this is a blueprint for technologies that, that increases public awareness because nuclear's always had this strange association from those not that comfortable with it of, of kind of conflating it with fission and and disaster and mystery and all these other things and, and use cases. But um, are you seeing the response? One, is it easy to communicate in a mainstream fashion? Because clearly it is technologically quite complicated. Uh, and two, are you seeing the, the adoption you want grow uh, from both the government and public perception? I think that when, I think that in general, in the in the wider public, people don't really know what fusion is. A lot of people haven't heard of it, um, or if they have, it's in like things like Iron Man, or you know, they don't really know anything about it really. Um, but I think that we're in, we're increasing the awareness in, let's say, governments and 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 because they're aware of it as a as a as a disruptive technology i suppose that they've been funding for a long time and and now particularly in, in governments they're starting to think about the regulatory frameworks because we're getting to the stage where there are private companies there and they do want to build let's say pilot plants and and so they need to have the licensing and all of those kind of regulations established so the governments are aware of it on those kind of levels um i think that I think that it would be it's important that we we improve the awareness in like amongst investors let's say and, and energy professionals and and in those kind of areas because for me like this is going to be key to to moving it to moving fusion forwards like and commercializing fusion and actually that's why I started fusion energy insights because through the work that I've done over the last um say 10 years so I finished my PhD about 10 years ago just over 10 years ago and so since then I've been working more on on the communication side of things but also I've been working in the private fusion space so I started working with Tokamak Energy in in 2013 I've been working with the Fusion Industry Association since 2018 and so from doing that I've got I've, I've got an awareness of of what's happening in the the private fusion sector and with the FIA the fusion industry association uh, more on the like the wider sector as as well so not just one private company but like what's affecting all of the private companies and what their their aims are and what their um, interests are and so i kind of see our role at the fusion industry association as like smoothing the pathway to commercialization so like what are those hurdles that aren't scientific that we're going to need to to get over in order to get us to commercialization and one of those as i've mentioned is is regulation another one is uh we we call it public private partnerships so how do the how does the the private sector work with the public sector and the fusion labs the public labs um to get to fusion faster because i don't think it's one or the other they 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 are going to need to work together and increasingly they are working together um the private the private companies are trying to do things faster and demonstrate break even and build pilot plants but there's a huge amount of expertise in the in the public labs um and there's as i said there's mm. technology that needs to be developed so that technology should be being developed um, by the by the public labs, like hopefully, and then they can interface. and And so we'd like to see more uh, from the government, like more financial incentives for the the private sector to be able to work with the public sector and and get get to fusion faster. So there's those elements to it. But I also um, I've also noticed that we we really really need to be engaging more with people in investment and people in energy, like the end the end users if you like or the or the beneficiaries because we need to like who is some who is going to roll out these uh these pilot plants like or, or public not pilot plants like fusion plants like who is actually going to do this and like the energy companies have the infrastructure uh you know they have the expertise they just need to sort of pivot their offering to to something that's cleaner and greener and so 
how can we help them to do that? And so that's that's sort of why I started Fusion Energy Insights because I I want to work together with with those people. I want to help them. I want to help energy professionals see the opportunities that Fusion presents for their business so that they can you know, they can benefit from it. They can drive the energy transition, but they can do so profitably. Like that's that's kind of what I want to to help with. Just just opening their eyes to the possibilities of Fusion so that they're ready to to take those steps as the opportunities emerge. And so there's yeah, it's in, there's a lot of things that are going to need to be done on the on the pathway towards commercialization. And I think getting those like investors and energy <coughs> professionals involved is key. I think so. I think telling the public that you wanted to build a demonstration demonstration unit um, a couple of miles away from them with no context of them having been pre-educated on fusion or why we're doing it would probably be a struggle. And actually, I, I like to think of myself as somebody who, who you know, keeps up to date with science and news. And I spoke to Richard Dinnan and ITA had been complete news to me. I hadn't realised that actually it wasn't still just being pushed back on this 30-year timescale that we might hit Q, as it were. And he was saying that it could be 2025, it could be 2030, like pessimistically, but it, it, it realistically should be in the next 10 years, which, you know, that's not full commercialization, but that's a massive inflection point, which brings the discussion forward, you know, a, a long way to the point where we, we need to flush out our understanding and, and what we think of it. I had a question that arose while you were talking of between the, the private and the public sector. Um, is this a situation where the private sector are making some really great strides, but ultimately a bigger budget, a bigger facility and a, and a bigger reactor is is better, scientifically speaking. So would those private companies benefit from more resource fundamentally, or do you think it can be achieved on the scales that they want? Or will there be a volunteering of the IP and the licensing they develop to these bigger organizations such that, that the bigger ones end up achieving it first? I think that the bigger, the machines initially need to get bigger, or not initially, but like Startups start small, of course, and then and they demonstrate mm. something small. Like if I can illustrate it with Tokamak Energy, um, they started off and they demonstrated their capabilities with a, a small Tokamak, which they called ST25. <clears throat> Excuse me, the S the 25 is just a reference to its size, the the the, the radius. So they had this small Tokamak, and if you if I think about the size of it, imagine if I like open my arms wide into like a big bear hug maybe a bit bigger than a bear hug but you know like open my arms wide like that's that's as if i were hugging the tokamak so it's about that kind of size st25 so it's a really small thing mm -hmm. um it doesn't do fusion but it's uh <coughs> excuse me it doesn't do fusion but it makes um it makes plasma and you can control the plasma and you can you can start developing your tech your, your technology technology and your capabilities um then they built a machine that was the same size as that, but with all its magnets made of high temperature superconductors. And so that was a demonstration of this new technology because nobody had built magnets using high temperature superconductors before. And so that was a new thing. And this was 2015. And they held their plasma for about 29 hours before they turned it off. And so, again, it's not a high powered fusion plasma, but it was a demonstration of the magnet technologies. And... Um, and from there, they were confident to build a bigger machine. So they then built a, a machine called ST40. Um, again, you can hear it's getting bigger. And uh, it's about, so ST40 is about, um, if I, it's it's bigger than me if I stood next to it, but the inner vacuum vessel is about the same size as me. So I'm about, how tall am I? About five foot six, 170 centimeters or something. Um, so, but that's the inner part. Then it's got co magnetic coils around the outside and, more stuff so um so the machines are getting bigger but st40 is it's the world's highest field spherical tokamak so it's got the highest magnetic field of any spherical squashed up tokamak that's ever been built so it's doing interesting research into how a plasma behaves in that kind of configuration but they're also trying to get to fusion temperatures so 100 million degrees they got to 15 million degrees in 2018 and then since then it's been disassembled, moved, <laughs> reassembled and upgraded to have like much better power supplies and heating mechanisms and all of this stuff. So it's 
better than it was. And this year they're trying to reach 100 million degree temperatures and that's fusion temperatures. And so that will be really exciting. And um, so that's the progression. But then the next machine, if you want to get past energy break even, then you need a machine that's probably about the size of jet, which we mentioned earlier. So about 12 meters tall. Um, th this is like roughly. Uh, but so you can see that they're getting bigger. Now, there is a stop point here because we don't want the machines to get as big as ITER. That's what happened historically. They just the machines got mm. bigger and bigger and bigger. But the problem then is that the machines take a long time to build and they're much more expensive. And it's you know, arguable whether something the size of ITER could ever actually be commercialized. It will be really exciting like demonstration of the technology, but I don't think it's a pathway to commercialization. So the, the private companies realize that they need to get the machine size down if they're going to get the costs down and, and build something that's economical. So private companies are, are working on things that I would say are going to be more like jet sized as a cap, hopefully. Um, so so those those will probably be in the hundreds of millions of dollars to, to build, maybe a bit more. Um, but ideally not getting into the billions and billions of ETA. And as as things develop, so these will be first of a kind, you know, as things develop, then costs will come down. And if you can make them smaller, then you can enable factory production and economies of multiples and bring the cost down further. Um, so that, yeah, that's, that's further down the track. So I think that, yes, the machines are getting bigger, but we want to limit that size <laughs> to something that can actually be economical and, mm. and can be, be built at a, at a reasonable time scale. So yeah, ITER is, is is huge and as i said it's a tremendous feat of engineering and so much i would never think that eater is a waste even if even if like and it's kind of my hope that private companies will get to break even before eater does and will demonstrate a, a, a pilot plant demonstrating electricity before eater um maybe even before eater gets to break even mm. that that is my wish you know i want to get there as soon as possible um but eater so much work has gone into eater like we're all building on that research that has gone into ITER. Like, those are the foundations of the fusion program. Yeah. So it's tremendously important, even if um, even if startups get there sooner. And is, so, and then this is just to somebody who, who has no background in physics, but is, does the size of the plasma dictate the level of temperature you need? So if the plasma field is bigger, does that mean you can get away with lower temperatures in order to get the reactions or is it not correlated? No, you still need the high temperatures. Um, the, the, the bigger, te the bigger okay. size helps you with, um, we call it energy confinement. So you want to keep your, you want to keep your plasma hot enough and dense enough for long enough that fusion can happen. Those are like the three parameters. So the temperature, the density, and the, we call it the confinement time, hot enough, dense enough for long enough. Those are your, your three things. And um, so the, and the, the bigger your machine is, the, the longer you have essentially. It's like, um, it's like how long does it take if you, I don't know how, who has like old boilers anymore, but we used to have like old boilers, you know, hot water tank. <laughs> and if you turn that off, like how long does it take for the energy to, for the plasma, for the sorry, for the hot water tank to cool down, for the energy to all disappear. That's essentially what the confinement time is. If you turned it off, how long does it take for all that energy to leak out? And um, in a plasma, it's very quick. And so, if you build a bigger tokamak or a bigger machine, it just takes longer for the energy to leak out from the center, like out to the outside. So it's kind of um, it's kind of basic in a way. Um, but the bigger machine does. <laughs> Well, this is why you're you're good at communicating <laughs> it, right? It's 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 got to be in some way done by by analogy. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the who's who at the moment and the technologies available, you've alluded to quite a few um, people emerging in the private space. So, if you're going to sort of take the the big five and the span of of main technologies that are trying to achieve this, um, what does that look like at the moment? So, the big private companies um, are. So there's um, there's one called Commonwealth Fusion Systems, which span out of MIT, and they are researching a, a tokamak design. So they're close to the mainstream. They're also researching high temperature superconductors, and so they have a you know, they're, they're doing very well. They have a very good chance because, as I said, close to the mainstream, but bringing in new technologies to do things better and faster. <laughs> so they're they're a key player. Um, there's also um, 
TAE Technologies. They are researching a completely different concept, but they're one of the the older uh, startups. They've been going for longer than 10 years and um, and they've they've also raised the most private investment over the time and um, and they've also diversified more recently into they've got a, a medical technologies arm as well as a fusion technologies um, arm and the concept that they're working on is something called a reversed field pinch which is a linear or a straight line machine and it essentially they kind of fire two two smoke rings they're plasma rings, but they look like smoke rings, um, like into the center where these two smoke rings join and and then they keep that. So again, it looks like a donut shape, like a ring, but they're now, they're, you know, they're just smoke rings in a ring. Um, and they join into one and they keep it stable like that and, and heat it up and fusion happens there. Uh, they were trying to do a, a, um, a different fuel type, a mix called hydrogen boron, which wouldn't produce neutrons which has mm. some benefits because neutrons are actually really damaging to the materials of the machine and they make it slightly radioactive, which is awkward. Um, but they also produce, like, give us huge amounts of energy. So, um, you know, the pros and cons. Um, and also the, the, the deuterium-tritium reaction that produces neutrons is the easiest to do. And fusion's already hard enough. So, like, most people was, will start with the easiest reaction and, and build up. And so TAE... They have been, they're doing experiments at the moment with um, deuterium and maybe even deuterium tritium. And then I think in the future may move on to hydrogen boron. So we'll see. But so they're a big player, but very different concepts. There's also um, general fusion in Canada. They have a, a, a concept which is a bit like, it's kind of a mixture between, um, between what well, we, we, there's, there's a type of fusion called laser fusion. Well, it's not called that. It's called inertial confinement fusion, but it uses lasers essentially to um, to squash hmm. a, a fusion fuel pellet. So imagine a pellet the size of a peppercorn, and and that's that's got deuterium mm -hmm. and tritium in it, like a peppercorn, and um, and it's blasted on all sides by about two hundred lasers, <laughs> and that makes it squashed down into like incredibly like dense, hot in the center, and you can do fusion that way. Um, so that's that's another way of doing it. There's a private, uh, sorry, a public lab called um, NIF, the National Ignition Facility in America, who's been working on that. But so general fusion is like... Would this sorry. peppercorn, uh, would, would that peppercorn be enough to, to, to release any kind of meaningful energy? I mean, is that the scale we're talking about? Or if they want to scale that up, does it have to be a, a much bigger pellet? No, it'd be, it'd be a small pellet and it would release a lot of energy, but they'd have to fire it probably 10 times a second or something you'd have to have a high repetition rate to do that which lasers can't do yet um so in order to make it into a power station you you need the repetition um yeah but so so that's a, so that's called inertial God. confinement fusion and if you if you think back to the different like what you need for fusion hot enough dense enough for long enough it's like there are different ways of achieving this because on the like the like the sun for example it's huge and its gravity is what pulls it together and mm. keeps it confined and it's got a long time but it's not actually that hot i mean the sun's about 15 million degrees not hundreds yeah. of millions of degrees but it's it's got it's got long enough its energy confinement time is huge and so you can you know you can just it's, hmm. so that's on like one part of the, one side of the scale and then inertial confinement is another side of the scale where the energy confinement time is like really short but you blast it with so like these these lasers and so it's got um, a really high density um and then the tokamaks are kind of somewhere in the middle you've got higher temperatures a kind of intermediate time um and uh intermediate density so there are different you can play with these three parameters in different ways if you like um but going back to the, the the private companies general fusion has uh it's kind of in the middle in that they 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 want to compress it a bit like inertial fusion but they do it with these mechanical pistons and but they also have like a bit of the magnetic side going on so they have a i think they sort of inject uh again like plasma rings which combine in in the center to uh to, so you've got a kind of ring of plasma and then in the middle of this liquid metal wall, which they would then compress with pistons. So then you send a shock wave through 
the liquid metal and into the plasma, which then compresses the plasma to fusion conditions. That's their aim. So, yeah, there are various different different concepts. And then Tokamak Energy has, uh, again, a Tokamak concept, so like well-established, but slightly different because it's a spherical Tokamak. And the advantages of the spherical Tokamak is that you can get like higher efficiencies, um, it's a bit, bit more stable, uh, which is good, so heat leaks out less easily. And and a key point is that it has a it has a sort of self driving current, which is important for plasma stability. Um, mm. Which means that you don't have to drive that current externally. That means you have to put less energy in to keep the whole thing stable. So in a future power plant, a spherical tokamak could be more economical because you'll have to put less energy in to to keep it all going. Um, but it has more engineering difficulties because everything's more squashed up, so it's a bit harder to build, and it's it's still like a, a newer technology, you could say, than the than the original tokamak. So there's a little bit of uncertainty there. But they're also using high temperature superconductor magnets. So so yeah, these these are kind of like some of the key companies and the different approaches that they're taking. So they're all slightly different. It's fascinating because, as you say, from each different vantage point, they might start making little inroads in. As you say, it seems with Tokamak, energy conservation seems to be quite important, especially when you look at that 0.7 number you mentioned earlier. I mean, every um, anything that closes that gap, or even when you're net positive, pushes it into, um, you know, makes it even more um, energy efficient is, is going to be yeah, massive. Actually, the 0.7 number is actually just the the energy that's going into the plasma. Um, so then the, it, it would be even worse if you looked at the whole balance of plant. So the no, it's really just the energy that's being delivered to the plasma to, to heat it up. Um, I think I, I mentioned them both together, like the magnets and the thing, but, but the 0.7 number comes from what is being put into the plasma to heat it up and what are we getting out? And so if you calculated it with, with the wider number of how to, yeah, everything you need to keep the plant going, it would be less. Oh, like a full functioning electric Yeah, we call plant it, we have a Q fusion, even, even which is what we've been talking about, the 0.7 number. That's sort of Q fusion, which is energy into the plasma versus energy out. Whereas there's also a Q engineering, which would, which would be like the whole of the, whole of the, the machine, really. So in terms of the timelines moving forward, I mean, they're going to hit this 100 million mark, which I, I think presumably be so. a big a big turning point for yeah, them. Yeah, it'd be huge. Um, <laughs> one one so. Um, but, but for the next two to five years, how you imagine this will play out in your mind, or the next two to 10 years, what do you think the chronology of events may look like that we could be expected to see in terms of whether it's the public perception or, or the actual technology being delivered that you imagine? Mm. Okay. Um, I will caveat the timeline things with the fact that predictions are really, really hard because science is an exploration and we don't know exactly what we're going to find, etc. Um, but also that there's there are so many other things that come into it. Uh, it's not just the science. It's like the the politics and the investments and the people and you know there's, there's so much that that comes into it. But of course the the private companies have goals and they have targets and they have they have things that we're working towards. So. Um, so I can tell you those and we'll see what happens. And um, mm -hmm. so in general, what the private companies would like is to be able to demonstrate break even this decade, ideally. So around, let's say, probably 2025 at the earliest, maybe 2028. So if, if we could, if we could get past break even in that window, um, that would be really good i think um and that probably involves building other machines so like commonwealth fusion systems they have a design for a machine called spark that they released um, last year and um and this will be a tokamak with um, high temperature superconductor magnets and the aim of that is to get past break even and i think that's due to come online around 2025 so and, and Tokamak Energy have, have similar plans. So that would be really good. Uh, and then that would lead on to a demonstration pilot plant, so a, a plant that produces electricity in the early 2030s. So that's the goal. Most of the, most of the private companies are aiming for some kind of demonstration of electricity in the early 2030s. And then on top of that, the, the, like the governments, the public labs, are starting to make similar 
uh, calls for for pilot plants as well. So in the in America, they released it was the National Academies of Science released a report recently um, where they said that they want to have a pilot plant producing electricity in the 2035 to 2040 timeframe. So this isn't the government hasn't authorized this yet, if you like, but this is like the recommendation from the National Academies of Science. And they've got a solid plan for, for getting there as well. So what would need to be funded on what timescale to achieve that, um, which I think is very interesting um, if, if they could stick to that. And the UK has a plan for a, a device called STEP, which is actually going to be a spherical tokamak for energy production. That's what it stands for, STEP. And... Um, hmm. And they they want to do this by 2040. So even the public labs that have like quite ambitious timescales now for, for their pilot plants. And so if the private companies can bring that forward into the early 2030s, I think that would be key because then, then there's a window where you've got the 2030s for beginning commercialization and beginning rollout and the 2040s for wider deployment. And then you're, you can start actually making impact into some of these 2050 climate goals. So the, the quicker we can we can push for a demonstration plant, the better. Would it be would I be risk at risk of sort of being overly dramatic if I try to touch on the energy security point of these technologies and what they mean in terms of a sort of geopolitical <laughs> landscape? I mean, what happens to the countries that bring these on online first? What happens to the countries that are not developing these programs? Are they just at the whim of being sold this technology in the future? Is there a bit of um, discomfort around sharing research? Who gets there first and, and who gets to harness this technology? Because clearly its application is incredibly potentially very powerful. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. And I don't think I'm sufficiently qualified to talk about the geopolitics in, in any detail. But yes, you, you can imagine you can imagine some of some of these impacts. And I think in some ways, that's why fusion is going to be so transformational. I mean, it's going to be huge anyway, because like, imagine having a clean source of energy that doesn't produce any carbon dioxide, um, that's that's safe, you know, that you can put near population centers. Um, it's, it's, and also like a lot of the companies are, are thinking about like modular solutions. So if you can make things that are smaller, like jet size, for example, you could use you could use them more flexibly. You could use one to, to power a, a hospital, let's say, or you could put 10 together to, to form a, a gigawatt or two gigawatt power station if these are modules of about 100 to 150 megawatts. So um, people are looking at ways to use it flexibly. Um, so, yeah, like, Im imagine what what the technology could do just just for energy. Um, the other key thing being electricity is only a tiny, we, tiny, tiny part of the energy market. Well, it's not a tiny, tiny part. It's like 20% or something, but it's, it's not the majority. Um, so 80% of what we need to decarbonize, we don't have a good solution for. We need heat for industry, particularly things like cement and steel, and we need liquid fuels. We need fuels for shipping and for aviation. And fusion can help with those kind of things as well. Maybe not as the initial market, particularly because of costs and things. But for the longer term, you could use fusion as a heat source for industry. It can make more efficient hydrogen. You can use that for ammonia. You can use it for liquid fuels. You know, so fusion has a potential to, to really contribute to like much more of the energy market, not just electricity. And if we want to, if we're serious about decarbonizing, we have to address that other 80%, the really difficult part. And that's another reason why I want to, with Fusion Energy Insights, talk to like, energy companies, oil and gas companies, the, the people who have the expertise and the understanding and the infrastructure and need to, to pivot that technology, because I think Fusion could be really um, helpful for them. And so, yeah, let, let, let's talk, let's, let's work together. Um, and so, yes, and that will change things on the geopolitical side. It will, I suppose, it will change the power balance of, of countries. And mm. there are, and it, uh, so that's on the geopolitical side, but even on the like, impact side in, in the countries, in the countries that develop it, it will give them, um, well, lots, it will give them energy security. It will give them licensing revenues. 
not just from the energy licensing, but probably there'll be a lot of spin out technologies, particularly from things like high temperature superconductors, uh, where there'll be medical applications and imaging applications and probably motors and generators and you know, various different things. So there'll be licensing revenues, energy security, there'll be jobs uh, in, in things like, like high tech, um, energy industry, construction. So there'll be a lot of impacts for the countries that actually develop this. And then the geopolitical impacts are, are even wider. So there, there is a kind of race, you could say. Um, I know that, well, the, the, U, the UK and the Americans are, are probably like leading this. And, and so if you listen to either country, they will say, yes, we're the world leader in fusion and we want to be the world leader in fusion and we want to push this. Like both of those, both countries are saying that. So, and that's interesting and it's exciting and we are working together as well. And this is why fusion is, is sort of interesting because there's a lot of collaboration. ITER, as I said, is a worldwide collaboration. A lot of scientific research is, is shared, even with the Fusion Industry Association. The companies are working together for, you know, for the good of the fusion industry, even though they're competing with each other. Um, so there's a, there's, a bit of, there's a bit of both. When it comes to things like regulation, when it comes to things like public-private partnerships and just moving the industry forward, there's a lot of collaboration. Um, but definitely the the US wants to be first and they want to like own the technologies. And I think the UK does too. And I'm sure that the Chinese do. And they're, they're, you know, there's going to be a lot of... There are, there are a lot of people who are interested in this technology. I guess there's a preoccupation, a bit like with quantum computing, if it was quantum supremacy for that. And I guess just getting over that theoretical challenge and just simply delivering the technology, because when I think of fusion, I think of this sort of ability to be flippant with our consumption of energy. And I, I don't, don't mean that too cat candidly, but for instance, if you were single-minded enough to say, we, we, we just want to desalinate the sea and pump it into the Sahara, well, burning fossil fuels or, or you know, even using solar, that probably wouldn't be that practical. But if you thought I have a limitless supply of energy, you, you can almost do what you want. And that's what you've just opened my eyes to is actually it's about the creative downstream use cases of, of not having as many oil tankers flying around and, and what the energy infrastructure looks like and, and all of these things that, you know, whether we like it or not, it does seem that there at the moment is inextricably linked the fact that CO2 output is generally or loosely correlated to economic output and well-being and quality of life for people entering into the middle classes and beyond. Um, which means we are inherently that that's got to change if we want to meet our, our climate ambitions very I think clearly it's a it's a key point that you make i mean it's about it's about energy abundance in a in a good way i mean i not necessarily like extravagance i don't think we you know your example maybe pumping into the sahara was like like extravagance but it's not i mean you're completely right like if we if well we know that other other countries, developing countries, are going to um, are going to increase their energy needs and energy demands. Like they're going to do that, and it's almost on us to give them an, a new, a different opportunity, an, an opportunity to do it better. Because it's all very well for us to say, like in our developed countries, oh, we need to we need to have less because we've we've got a lot, and like we're fortunate in that way, and. And yeah, we can make changes in our own lives. And I believe that we should like recycle and, and think about sustainability. But ultimately, I don't believe that we're going to achieve our goals by denying ourselves things. That's not the way that humans work, unfortunately. Um, and certainly, mm. we're not going to reach our goals globally um, by denying developing countries that opportunity they're not going to take it that they're, they're going to they're going to do whatever they need to increase their standard of living and if all that they can do is burn coal they will burn coal so if we truly want to contribute to solving climate change and having a cleaner energy future and not just climate change just just pollution i mean huge amounts of coal like air pollution is coming from fossil fuels and we can like improve our lives as well as their lives but anyway if we want to do that and it's a global thing you know we can't just do the good stuff here and let africa and india like build coal power stations like we just can't we need to give the world a different alternative and i think that like fusion can be huge and it's going to take dedication but i don't think it's impossible i think we should we should all get behind it and we should we should work to 
to achieving that, not just for us, but but globally. It's it's so exciting having this conversation because I I picturing myself having it again in three to five years time with you, hopefully, and we can just have moved on in aligned with this this vision and it can be so exciting. Um, so actually, if people want to keep step with what's happening, um, how how should they continue to get involved? I mean, obviously, be following Fusion Energy Insights and your newsletter I've been doing, which I've been really enjoying. So how would you suggest anybody who, who listened to this and wanted to kind of continue their understanding, their journey uh, and you know, be involved in it however they want to be, what would you suggest they start doing? I think that if you really want to be involved in Fusion and you want to inform yourself and understand more about Fusion, then I hope Fusion Energy Insights will be a good place to start. Um, it's new at the moment. I mean, it's pre-launch at the moment, um, but I've, you know, I've got plans for it going forward. And, and the key aim is to to keep people informed. So first of all, to if you if you're completely new to Fusion, like bring people up to speed with Fusion, um, and then as things are developing, like month by month, keep people informed with what's happening, so that so that they have the confidence to 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 take opportunities to see things coming and to see opportunities for their business and that's the key the key point like transitioning their businesses like i don't know how to do that for your business but i can help you to understand like what's coming and and how fusion might affect you in the future and like i want to help people drive the energy transition like that's my goal a clean energy future and so if i can help people do that then i'd i'd love to do that so so that would be my key thing if you want to know more about fusion, because I think that there are going to be a few things that are required to get us to commercialization. Of, of course, we need to keep on doing the science. So we need to have we need to have, as I say, government support, um, public private partnerships. Uh, we need to have more investment. And so hopefully if, if that's something that you're interested in, again, hopefully Fusion Energy Insights can open your eyes to what's out there, what's possible, um, maybe an investment. And I think it's happening. People are increasingly thinking about impact investment. So think about how you can pull in like more people. Maybe there are ways to, I was listening to your uh, podcast with um, Ticker just the other week. And that's really interesting. Like how can you get more people interested in impact investing? And maybe there are ways, maybe there are ways to even do it smaller, like, uh, I don't know, kids' pocket money could be, you could put something in to like, do some good with this donation. And if you have enough people, uh, then maybe you've got a bit of money that can go into Fusion. I don't know. I'm not an investor, but I'm sure that there are other ways that investors, creative mm. ways that investors can think about improving uh, where they put their money. Um, we're going to need, we're going to need public support as well. So just, again, just being informed about Fusion, telling other people about Fusion. So you made a point earlier, like people need to know it's coming and need to know it's happening. So it's not a huge surprise when it when it suddenly does. So so let's all elevate ourselves. Let's all just like learn a little bit more about about this this thing that's coming, because it is hugely exciting. Like I, you mentioned space before, like I think it is like like SpaceX, you know, you're taking a huge transformative technology out of the lab and into like the public domain, the commercial domain, like that's really exciting um, or it could be so let's find people to help us tell that story and so those are the kind of things you can you can do inform yourself uh, think about investment think about your role in the energy transition and and what and what you need like what your skills are and what you need and if you need to know about fusion then look at fusion energy insights and i'm going to caveat with one thing before um, I, I cap off which is I think until prior to having this discussion or some other discussion, you, you are at risk with these new technologies of sounding like it's the, the ramblings of a madman. You know, you say, you know, fusion's coming, fusion's coming, and people yeah, think you're no, crazy at the insane. same if you've been talking about relanding <laughs> rockets. So there, there's this there's this really fine line I've noticed between getting so enthused and when I talk to some of my mates about what's happening or what I see being funded and, and then sounding like, you know, it's on the verge of craziness. But time and time again, I think, it seems that the future is is starting to finally be on our doorstep in a way that's truly meaningful, truly exciting. And I think with the investment case, my gut feeling from from spending some time in at the moment is people are still looking in the from the what's in it for me, where's my exit? And and that at the moment seems to be elusive in terms of who would you sell a fusion 
reactor company to or who's buying it or, or how do you even price it because i guess if it if it goes right if it goes well i mean it it, it would change everything you know yeah. greed. Well, i think you're right that um yeah at the early days of anything it looks crazy i mean it really really does and it's only as you get further down the track um that it starts to look less crazy and more people start jumping on board and and that's okay I think it's okay that fusion still looks a bit crazy. Um, and I think that it will change. And I think this is the decade where we're going to see it change. I think by the end of the decade, you're going to see many more people saying, okay, actually this, this could be a thing and, and maybe we should get involved. And, and that's okay. And actually fusion energy insights, I'm sort of aiming it at the early adopters, the people who think this is really cool. Mm. This could be really cool. And I need to know more about it. I'm not aiming it at like everybody because I know that a lot of people are skeptical. Um, and, but, the, but those, there are those key people and the, like, they're the people who are investing in the fusion companies now. They're sort of visionary. They're not all, some of them are visionary high net worth people who think it's really cool and they've got the money to put in, but not all. There are also um, like pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, but they're, they're big investors. So like, we don't expect to suddenly get the the VCs and the angel investors because it's fusion's a different kind of thing, and that's okay. I, I think it's all right that mm. there are that it's that things are not for everyone, and even with fusion energy insights, as I said, it's I know that it's going to be the early adopters at the moment, and and that's okay. Like we'll we can we can nurture that, we can work together with that, and it's going to grow. I promise you, it's going to grow. Well, I'd say you sit on the side of science, so I'm inclined to, to believe you rather than me sitting on the side of ignorance. And, and I find it really exciting. I think the game of investing is becoming take a bet on something which will be potentially way bigger in the future than it is today. And, and so then I think it's a bet worth taking rather than just sitting there playing safe and, and everything else. And so um, thank you so much for coming on. I, I mean, I, I find it absolutely fascinating and I hope that other people will and, and that the conversation will bubble up and that we can have another one in a few years time and really see how see far it's are. come. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the Startup Mike, M-I-C, or get us an email, ed at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations. Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory backed Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building, London, are as ever the unassuming stars of our show. Check out entail.co. And thank you for listening. Goodbye.